0: How dare you you know how much you know how much this country's done for you yeah i kind of do i still got the lashes yeah
1: can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position i have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives both professionally and personally in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realise we are Everyday Leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. Welcome back to part two of this special episode with my guest, James Pugson, as we celebrate Black History Month in our own way on Everyday Leadership. If you have not heard part one yet, where have you been now? Seriously. We've traveled through time from the 1970s and we'll pick up his story in the present day. I highly recommend you go back and listen before you carry on with this one. But without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is Everyday Leadership. So in
0: 2020,
1: have things got better? No.
0: We got Wi (laughs) Fi. You know what I mean? (laughs) We got Wi Fi. We got flat screen TVs. As my Rasta friend says, he goes, Because things are nice. Because most of us are in a house, most of us have food to eat, most of us have a mobile phone and internet access. We think things are nice. But what's changed? Why? Why are people objecting to if two black people are on TV at the same time? Oh my God, they're taking over! Really? So when they went into Africa and the Americas and took over? That's not taking over, that's civilising the savages, really. So Christopher Columbus discovered America in 1492, when really he discovered that there were people living in the Americas in 1492. And this whole thing about Thanksgiving that the Americans celebrate, well, well, what, what was it? Because the white people came over and they were starving and the indigenous population fed them, and that was as Thanksgiving, so they gave them cholera, smallpox, and killed them off. That's a great Thanksgiving. Don't get me started on Black Friday. So where is it any better? Why, you know, why why are people objecting to the fact that statues are being taken down of slave traders? And they said, "Oh, they did so much for this community." My thing was, don't don't take the statues down. Give me a reason why they should stay up. Give me a damn good reason why the statues should stay up.
1: Well, it depends on who's giving you the reason as well,
0: though. Exactly. So that's for me, it was like, don't, don't don't take them down. Tell me why it needs to stay up. Because you're saying that he did all this. So how come we don't mention that he's a slave trader? Oh, that doesn't matter. Really? To who? That doesn't matter. Black lives don't matter, but all lives matter, but black lives don't matter. So whose narrative? You know, the black narrative has been written by the white man. So when black people try and write the black narrative, white people get upset. Oh, why do you have to keep talking about slavery? And I'm like, well, why do you keep talking about that? The last time you won the World Cup was in 1966. Get over it. No, six years are hurt. Okay. Really? Okay, but it's like, no, you don't need to talk about slavery anymore, but why are you not still talking about the Battle of Hastings 1066 and Henry VIII? Why? When wasn't all that before a transatlantic slave trade, was it not? But well, we're supposed to forget about that, but remember 1066. And remember all the names of Henry VIII's wives
1: which has zero bearing on anything or the reality of the, the world we're currently living in right now.
0: You know, but it's like, oh, don't, don't show diversity dancing about, you know, the fact that they mentioned the global pandemic and how communities have had to root together and for eight seconds talked about George Floyd. But, oh, no, my children don't need to see that even though they can download hardcore porn on their own phones. But watching diversity has traumatised them. Really? So... Didn't you not watch the eight minutes and 39 seconds, was it, of George Floyd being murdered by a police officer with his hands in his pockets and his sunglasses on top of his head, looking at the camera saying, and what? What are you going to do? He's an animal. Because if it was a human, you wouldn't do that, would you? Because you're a police officer, you're a law enforcer. So my perspective is, they don't see us as human. They just see us as animals that can speak. Because parrots can speak, can't they? A few years ago, didn't a dog win Britain's Got Talent? So that year, the most talented individual in Britain was a dog. (laughs) 60 million population and the most talented is a dog. A pedigree chum eating something. Britain's Got Talent is a dog. We object to a black group, ironically named Diversity. So, So people complaining about diversity on TV. What would have happened if George Floyd's murder, execution was not televised And there was no COVID, so we all... They literally had an audience sitting down in their house, watching him get murdered. He got murdered the day before my birthday. So if he wouldn't have got murdered, would programmes on TV, would they still be having discussions about, oh, we really need a a black presenter, even though this programme's been running for 40, 50 years and we've never had one, would we be having those discussions? Why is it that all these people are now going... Oh wow! So this is what you lot have been talking about for years and, years and years and years and years and years and years. We just didn't understand, really.
1: How much do you buy into what is currently happening right now? So let's say let's use um the BBC and their hundred million commitment to like diversity and or ITV's diversity acceleration plan, for example, to see more representation in front and behind the scenes of um, TV production and all those kind of things, do you buy into all of that? Or is it just window dressing?
0: I'm an extremely cynical person. So I ain't buying into it until I see it. To me, it's a bit like, you know, when you hear about somebody have a million pound recording contract, people who don't understand what that entails is, every time you see that group or individual have a pop video, you know, the, hundred, the, you know, the million pounds record deal is pays for that video, pays for your designer clothing for when you go on TV and whatever. If you want to have your entourage, pays for your entourage. Pays for your recording time in the studio. Pays for get your CD or cut or whatever. Comes out of all of that. You can only make money once you paid all of that million pound back. And that could be a million pound contract over the next five years. So with the BBC saying 100 million over how many years or whatever, four years, some of that money could be taken up from, okay, we need to hold a BAME committee meeting and get all these white people in the room with a few black people But, you know, these these white people are management consultants who earn like five grand a minute. So that money comes out of that budget, yeah? And then all these powwow meetings that they have, somebody has to pay for that. That comes out of all that budget, yeah? And then it goes, you know, the powers that be have to talk about this and that. And that comes out of that money, yeah? So what might materialise is you might get a programme next year featuring a black presenter with a white presenter because you can't have two black presenters that's right, you know, but it's progress. Then you say, yeah, but you've got black people. And it goes, so how many black producers? Oh, uh, you know, we, these things take time and, you know. So I'm cynical. I'd, I'd like to be proven wrong, but I'm not buying it. It's like, yeah, whatever. You know, when I, when I see it, I see it. But until then, it's just, it's just talk. Yeah, we're going to invest this and that. And I'm like, why now? You know, what were you thinking about this on the 24th of May? Probably not. Oh, this is a great initiative for who? But we're British, and it's the British Broadcasting Corporation. Who's it for? Or should we be grateful that there's a there's two black dancers on Strictly Come Dancing? Ironically, both from South Africa. So there's not black British. Not to say that there shouldn't be. I'm more powerful them. I think they're cool. But you know, it's like, oh, but they're foreign, but they're nice foreign. You know, because if you get black people who were born here or, or are British, oh my gosh, no. But, they're, you know, they're the, they're the nice South Africans. They're lovely. And they just stick to dancing. They're not talking about these Black Lives Matter because all lives matter. They're the nice ones. Where where they, the, you know, where are out of order ones? How dare you? You know how much, you're, you know how much this country's done for you? Yeah, I kind of do. I've still got the lashes. Yeah. What do you want to see happen? What, in this country? country I want to see the Black Broadcasting Corporation, man. It's like I want to start having to pay my TV license to watch it. Because there's there a thing as well. As black people, because like I said, I grew up in the 70s. So I was watching, you see pure white people all the time. I grew up watching the generation game with Bruce Forsyth watching the two runnies, all of that. Pure white people. But if it was funny, it was funny. If it was entertaining, it was entertaining. If a black person came on TV, well, everybody crowds around the TV because it's one of us. Well, we didn't boycott the BBC because there were no black people on it. So why now people want to boycott the BBC or the ITV because black people are on it? Yeah, apparently there's no racism in this country. So for me, it's kind of like, okay, let's do our own thing. And when we do our own thing, oh, you are not being racist. Well, so when we hold our own party, we're being racist. When we try and you join your party, you're not allowing us in because we're disruptors and we're a bit aggressive. Because, you know, two two black men in a room full of 100 white people, yeah, we'd win the fight, wouldn't we? Apparently, we're all Luke Cage, aren't we? Having said that, we're not bulletproof. Which we've been proven time and time again that we're not bulletproof. Because if we were bulletproof, or if police thought we were bulletproof, they wouldn't shoot us. So they know we're not bulletproof and in their minds, but they're not human either. Yeah. So they're game. They're fair game. But like I said, I'm cynical so i'm old school so as much as i'd like to have this approach to say oh you know things are getting better and you know it's a different world now it's the same world they're still looking for, they're looking for life on mars but they don't think that we're human here which is why they're looking for life on mars because there has got to be an alternative to these black people right so like i said i'm cynical you're a 90s boy i'm a 70s boy so please tell me please tell me that i'm chatting foolishness please tell me that james james man you just You've been on lockdown too long, man. You've got lockdown syndrome, man. It's just different, man. It's different. It's different. Everything's going to be nice. I hope it is, but I'm cynical. I can't see it. I wish I could. You tell me. I think
1: all I, all I can say is with the change in, in technology, we're having more conversations now than we did before. And you're learning and hearing more about people's experiences now than you did before. Yeah. And there are people who are intentionally fighting. That's that's part of what I do, like all all you or other people talking about it, intentionally fighting, using their voice, using their skill sets to drive change forward. So for me, that is progress because before especially when I look back in, in yeah. history, it will be a collective of, of people, others, like the Black Panthers, for example, a collective of a specific group who are intentional about driving the cause around racism. But everyone else is just on the periphery. But how, nowadays, it's actually, you do have a, a platform, you have a voice, you can speak up, you can kind of use it. So everyone's kind of doing that. And with the next generation actually coming up with, their, their generation is completely connected. So for them, it's, it's more normalized to have diversity than it is my generation or your generation. So for them, they're actually demanding it as well. So I see that coming up. I'm like, all right, there is that change coming through. But at the same time, I'm still operating in in spaces where I'm the only one there in two, three, 400 people. I'm still, we're still seeing the foolishness we're seeing with Argus, even that diversity complaints, for example. So that one's got what, 20... Twenty twenty one thousand complaints now. When the BBC said the N word on TV, they had eighteen thousand. Yes. Can you see how mad and crazy that really, really is? Yeah. And that's that's and that's the ridiculousness that you're dealing with. So it's combating the overtness and covertness that's out there while trying to stay sane, trying to keep your mental health in check, trying to still provide and do what you need to do, trying to make a change.
0: It's, it's a lot. It can be tiring and it can be draining sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm a storyteller. Fundamentally, I'm a storyteller. So whether it's in the business world as a copywriter, writing sales and marketing literature, it's still looking at your business narrative. I've been having conversations with black men of my generation. And we're talking about from a mental health perspective. And we talk about, I remember as a kid, hearing about men having a midlife crisis. And then if you look at how they described a midlife crisis, was, oh, you know, the man who swaps the family estate for a Porsche, who wears leather trousers, might be married for like 30, 40 years, and then ends up with a leggy 21-year-old blonde. That don't sound like no black man to me. So even when you're talking from a mental health perspective about a midlife crisis, you're talking about a white man. You're not talking about a black man. So what me and my black male friends have been talking about for our generation to say there was no point of, in terms of, if you look at a a midlife crisis for a black man, most West Indian men, because I'm talking about West Indian men, most West Indian men said very little. So you couldn't really tell if they're having a crisis or not. So we don't have a frame of reference to say, oh, yeah, I remember when Uncle Sons or my dad was going through a midlife crisis. We don't know. Whereas you're hearing a lot about male suicide. You're hearing a lot, I'm hearing a lot about black male suicide. And not necessarily the younger ones, I'm talking 50 plus. These are the conversations I'm having. So you're thinking, well, hold on a minute, what's going on? The same guy that when you saw him, you're right, Bridget, yeah, man, we see it, my cool, a good man, we're good. Then two days later commits suicide. So surely he wasn't good. But we all thought he was good. So how do we deal with things from a mental health perspective? Because if you look at now. Who's the kind of so-called patron saint of mental health? The future king of England. Who's a white man, naturally. Well, if you look at the stats, who gets sectioned more than anybody else? Us. Yeah. But that's never talked about in terms of mental health. That's like, he's crazy, he's, an endanger- he's a danger. For all of us, so even in the narrative of what mental health is, it's a white narrative. It's not a black narrative. We're not included in that. Because we go crazy, we go mad, we're angry. But there's something, but when when a, when a white person is having an issue, it's well, let's explain that they're having a crisis, they need help. Black man gone crazy. So how do you know? As a so my perspective as a middle-aged black man is kind of different from if I was in my 30s and even in my 40s, because I'm still thinking really, we're still i still having to deal with this now. And when do I have a chance to have my midlife crisis without being sectioned or tasered or accidentally choked to death? Remember, they used to call it death by misadventure. Misadventure. You <laughs> mean, so I, I just believe from, from our point of view, as in middle-aged black men and women, who were, uh, you know the children of the Windrush generation, what's happening with our mental health? Because we've seen it all, and then we're hearing the younger ones, which is positive, saying, "Yeah, man, you know things are a bit different. You know, we're changing things for us, but where where we are, they're where they're at." So they're seeing change because they've always seen change. You know, you got a generation of kids who have never not known computers. You know, well, I remember leaving my secondary school when they just got a computer. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> because what's one of those when I last when I was last in full time work as an employee, they didn't have the internet. Yeah, I'm not old school. They didn't have they had intranet. They didn't have the internet. So when I went back to visit them, I was the only one to have a mobile phone. I've had a mobile phone since 1995. They were going, James, what's that? I said, it's a mobile phone. He goes, what's a mobile phone? (laughs) They didn't know. There was no internet. So I can't even apply for a job to say, oh, yeah, I've got experience of office experience of using a Microsoft. No, the last time I was in there, man, i was still doing. i was still franking the post. You know what I mean? No email. So I'm a kind of a dinosaur who's had to create his own job, right? And what you touched upon earlier about how do I get into this line of work was the whole thing about being a creative writer and trying to get the commission on radio, on TV. And how it works is, you either get to, if you get told no, which I did often, you never see the person or hear from the person who told you no. It's a gatekeeper that tells you no. And how I made the switch from being just pure creative writing to copywriting was simply the fact that I was going for a radio commission and my dad had not long been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So I thought to myself, "What well, if I get this commission, my dad can hear my radio play before he dies. And that became my focus. And I got through to the final stages. He got sent to London. Now, I remember, I was coming home and I got a phone call from my Birmingham producer. She said, James, are you able to talk? I said, yeah, I'm talking. She goes, just heard from London, like you play. I said, great. She said, they said no. I said, okay, what's the reason? They don't give a reason. So I said, okay, thank you. Got in my house, vex. I said, right, that's it, done. Finished with this writing. Done. Over. Done. Done. My dad's dying. I wanted to do this. Done. So that night I went to bed angry. I thought, right, this writing thing, Going nowhere for me anymore. Finish with it. Woke up the next day. You gotta be who you are. So I heard this inner voice saying, But well, James, you're a writer. You're good at writing. Everybody tells you. Even the producers at the BBC said, like, James, you're brilliant. You this and that. I know I'm good. So I sat down and I thought, okay, writing is what I do. I'm a storyteller. I think that's what I was born to do. So I got onto good old Google, Other search engines are available, but I was on Google, and I typed in something along the lines of, what job can I do as a writer where I don't have to go through all these faceless gatekeepers, something like that. And then one of the things that cropped up was copywriter. Now I knew what a copywriter was in that sense, because when I did my BTEC National Diploma in Business and Finance at college, I took an advertising module and a marketing module, and I got distinctions in both. I remember the advertising lecturer said, he said, James, you produce some great one-liners and slogans and stuff, you'd be great at advertising. But again, in my naivety, I was thinking, yeah, okay, that sounds nice, but a black boy like me in the 80s from inner city Birmingham, how am I gonna get into advertising? So I'd kind of put that to one side until Googling and saw copyright to come up. I thought, hmm clicked on it, I thought, what does a copywriter do? Then I read what a copywriter does, and I said, I've done that in work, I've done that in work, I've done that in work, I've done that creatively. I'm a copywriter. But I didn't tell any of my friends or family. So I literally put myself out there in a business arena, and I remember afterwards, one of my friends said to me, James, how did you know you were a copywriter? And I answered, when I got my first check. Because up to that point, I thought I was a copywriter. And then when my, cust- my, my my client paid, he goes, no, James, you are a copywriter. But I knew if I would have told people, especially in the arts, I would have said, oh, James, man, don't do that. Or if I were you, I wouldn't do that. But well, my answer is, well, if you were me, you would do it because you'd be me. And so I found working for myself, because, you know, as an employee, if you're an employee and you're black, you're a black employee. You have to kind of, to a certain degree, you have to take the flack. If your boss is being racist with these microaggressions, whatever the hell that is, you kind of have to take it. Even though you want to tomp him down, you're going to lose your job. You're probably going to get arrested. You're probably going to get a Rodney King beating before you get arrested. Whereas when you work for yourself, you have to think to yourself, okay, I've got the skills, I've got the ability, but I'm a black man. How am I going to sell the sizzle, which is my skills and ability, not the sausage, which is me as a six foot black man? So I thought, I'm up to this challenge. I can do this. Because you know, as, you know as well as I do, when you're an employee, your role is fairly rigid. But they'll slap things in the miscellaneous section like, James, yeah, miscellaneous, yeah, you've got to make tea for like 22 people in the committee because that's on the miscellaneous, even though you're going to be the only person in there who's black. So I'm like Benson, you know what I mean, <laughs> bringing in the trade. You know, whereas when you're working for yourself, there's no excuse. You're not saying, oh, my white boss is making me do this or the hierarchy is making me do this. It's like, I'm here representing as me. And you've got to think to yourself, what is it I'm bringing to the table that's not going to overshadow my blackness, but they're going to look at what benefits I provide as opposed to seeing a black man who's here to intimidate us. So I remember I joined a business over breakfast committee uh, meeting. So basically, what used to happen on a Monday morning at seven o'clock, this sounds a bit seedy, but it's not. Monday morning at seven o'clock, we'd all meet in a hotel dressed in suits. And in this particular meeting, what they did was they said, You have 60 seconds to introduce yourself, to tell people what you do and what type of business you're looking for. And I was contacted because I said, Oh, we don't have a copywriter. And You're allowed to come as a guest twice and then you have to join only if there's one of a kind in your group. So if there was already a copywriter as a member in that group, I could not join that group. I could come as a member twice, but I could not join. Same if you could only be one accountant, one web designer, et cetera, et cetera. So my first meeting I walk in, there's 49 people in the room. One of a black guy who turns out was my cousin, who I didn't know. Because you know, I had to say, you must all know each other. Turns out I did. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I didn't at the time. So only when we got talking, it's like, oh, okay. So I'm walking in there, so I'm seeing 49 other people, one black guy. And everybody orders a breakfast. And what I found was interesting is, everybody's getting breakfast at different times, but the meeting's already started, so they're going around the room. I think they went clockwise. So I worked out, I thought, okay, I've got I've got about 15, 20 people before they come to me. So you get the first couple of people saying, hi, my name is so-and-so, and this, and no one's listening. Because they're either eating the breakfast, ordering the breakfast, or thinking what they are going to say. So I'm watching all this thinking, hmm, no one's listening. But everybody in here does something different. So I came up with a conning plan. Bear in mind, 60 seconds. So when it came to me, because everybody's got to stand up to talk, so it came to me, I stood up, and a pause. So people are hearing the pause thinking well, why isn't somebody talking. So they all look up now. I introduce myself and I say, I said uh, I feel pretty humbled because everybody in here does what I do. And they went whoa how can everybody in here does what he do does when we all do something different. So I got their attention and I says because I'm a writer but I write to sell, not just to tell. I got business on my very first day. Why? Because I know how to tell a damn good story. Wow. And that all came out
1: of you stepping out for yourself and actually making a lane for yourself because you do want to stay in that system.
0: I want, yeah. I wanted to be in a position that if somebody's going to say yes or somebody's going to say no, they're going to say it to my face, not hide behind an organization. And that's where it came from. Again, emotional. It came from an emotion. What do I want? I want to be able to put my writing down for somebody to say, yes, James, I'll pay for that. No, James, I won't pay for it. Yes, James, I accept that. No, James, I won't accept it. That's where it came from. What
1: caused you to keep on going and not give up? Because that's the other way that people can tend to go sometimes. be be like, oh, i reject got rejected again. I'm just going to pack it in. and Go design else.
0: Because I i was going to say, I don't believe I can do anything else. Yes, I can. I believe there are not many things I'm exceptional at. I am exceptional, in my opinion, at writing and speaking. Because my dad used to say, there are things you can do, doesn't mean you should do them. You know, when it comes when it comes to drawing and DIY, I'm a great writer. Which tells you I can't do DIY. <laughs> 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 you know what I mean? But its I think you've got to know... You gotta know yourself. You know, you've got to know yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses, but know your purpose. You know, my purpose is to tell story. And my the stories that I tell, you don't need a PhD to understand them. Whether it's my posts on LinkedIn, if I'm writing sales and marketing literature. Because here's the thing for me: going back to LinkedIn, imagine if somebody, if you've written a post on LinkedIn and you're having and your, po- and your explanation to your post is longer than your actual post, then there's something wrong with your post. Got to be. Because if you're having to say to people, yeah, what, what I meant was, what I was trying to say was, so why didn't you say? It? Whereas with mine, you get it. You don't have to like it. You get it. Uh-huh. Because I see how many people click on it, and I see how many reactions I get. You know, the clicks on outweigh the reactions. And that's fine. Because if you didn't like it, you know why you didn't like it. If you did like it, you know why you did like it. There's none of this, yeah, I didn't quite understand where he was coming from. You know where I'm coming from. And I've sat through too many meetings where people have gone on and on and on, and you don't know what they're talking about, but it sounds good to them. So they're communicating to impress, not to express. I communicate to express. Now, if you find it impressive, cool. You don't have to agree, but if you don't understand, then there's something wrong with my communication, not you. And that's what I used to say to my, my clients when it comes to their copy. Because they're saying, I know my business, so what is it that you do? And they tell me A. I say, what is it your customers say you do? They tell me B. So I say, tell me what you do again, but tell me C. So what do your customers say you do again? They tell me B. So I said, there's no consistency in what you say you do. But Sir James Dyson, inventor of the Dyson Hoover, said, you can only sell what people buy. So I'd say to my clients, so why aren't you selling what people are buying? Yeah, but James, this is what I want to say. Well, that's cool. Are you buying your products and services? No, but this is what I want to say. What about what people want to hear? I don't care what they want to hear. So why are you trying to sell to them? Oh, you're confusing me with your black skin and your common sense, oh! (laughs) How are you so sensible and black? It's not making sense. You sound like a white man, you think like a white man, but you're a black man! That's why I used to get the resistance. It's like, yeah, James, I hear what you're saying, it's making a lot of sense, but if I say what I really want to say, that's going to sound racist. So let's go with what I'm doing that's costing me money in the first place. But you're making a lot of sense. But I keep seeing your black skin and it's not a tan.
1: How do you, have you ever had someone in your line of work out and out just call you out and just say that, like, you know what, your, your blackness is a problem?
0: Not so blatantly, no. I've had, um, my, my, I've had the, my colleagues find it really difficult to talk to you because you speak so well. How is that hard? I've been told you're too confident, therefore you intimidate us. Yes. Yes. I remember one guy very high up in the arts literature world here in the Midlands. He still exists. He's still in the same role. Not going to name him. He said to me, James, you know your problem. You're too confident, you're too intelligent, you're too articulate and you intimidate my staff. And he said it to me. We went out. He, took, he said, "James, we need to have a conversation. Meet you in a coffee shop." So I don't drink coffee; I had a hot chocolate. So when he told me this, and he says, "James, are you angry? Do you want to throw the chocolate in my face?" Wow! And there's, so I said to him, "Why would I want to throw the chocolate in your face when I'm drinking?"
1: So what did he want you to do in that in that situation? What he wanted you to? Yeah,
0: he wanted me to kick off. You know, he, want, he wanted me to kick off. He wanted me to go. Oh, blah, 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 blah. He wanted all of that.
1: You no, know I mean in terms of. Your confidence and your the fact that you're so articulate, what did you want you to do? Turn it all down, limit yourself, like what was the outcome
0: of, of that of that conversation? But that's what listen, all through my career it's been, oh you're really confident, aren't you? And it's never a compliment. You're so confident. You know what you're talking about, don't you? Never a compliment. Go figure. No one's ever said to me, not that they should, but no one's ever said to me, James, you're so intelligent, but it's also you're so confident, aren't you? Always, you know, you know what you're saying, don't you? Can't believe you speak so well, as opposed to what? Man, you really know what you're doing, don't you? Wow. You're not scared of this, are you? Always. So for me, working for myself, I can only say from, let's say from a mental health point of view, best thing I ever did. From a financial point of view, my back manager might say, nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> You know, especially as you know, when you when you when you you know when you're a creative artist, you know they talk about feast and famine. You know, sometimes you're having a three course meal, sometimes it's like oh cereal again, oh, okay. You know, so like when they say life makes when life gives you lemons, <laughs> lemonade. You know, we have to season that lemonade. You know, you have to season it. But when the times were bad, I thought about when the times were worse as an employee, because again, when I left that job. They, they, um, they, they re-advertised the job internally on intranet. So I never told anyone I was leaving. So when my job flashed up on the screen, because it, you know, it, it tells you the salary. I remember, because I was an admin officer, I was the only male admin officer out of five of us. And the women all turned around, and one of them got out of a seat and said, James, is that all you're on? I said, what do you mean? She goes, is that all the money you're on? And I said, I'm not even on that much. They've increased it by about a grand. She goes, hold on a minute. She said, Sister James, I've got a confession for you. For the past two years, we've all been upset with you because you're a graduate and we don't have a degree. So we automatically assumed you were on more money than us just because you're a graduate and a man. And I was the youngest. So they're thinking, you're younger than us you're a graduate and you're a male, so therefore you must be on more money. And I says, I'm not even on that much. And I said, and that's why I remember the woman said, is that all you're on? I said, I'm not even on that. So they put the money up. So she apologised to me. She goes, James, I've been treating you in a particular way for two years. And I says, she goes, how can they pay you so less as a graduate? And I says, yeah, but you thought they were paying me more. So at least working for myself, listen, I remember doing one job for an organisation. And it was more than double my annual salary that I used to get. It's for one job. And I thought, wow, really? So my clients saw the value in my work. Yet, as a graduate, I was underpaid. Now, was that because I was black? Maybe. Because the interesting thing, when I joined that particular organization, the advert said, we are an equal opportunities employer. Two years later, when they actually Advertise my position, it said we are striving to become an equal opportunities employer. Not making it up. And I wrote to them, they ignored it. I said, so, so I said, how is it that you were? And then two years later, you're striving to be what you were. Wrote to them, they ignored me, sent a fax. Yeah. Got a fax machine. Yeah, exactly. You know how the you know had the phone fax combo. Exactly. That's how old school we're talking. Remember, no email. So I sent them. they ignored it. But I'm like, how is it you can... So all this time you were an equal opportunities employer, now you're striving to be an equal opportunities employer. That's mad. But I didn't have to explain. It's, that's just how it is. So I'm like, so, okay, so, hmm. My black life didn't matter. See what I did there. Thanks. Yes.
1: So what advice would you give for people coming up um, in the industry, in the arts in, in and entertainment world as writers or as copywriters who are still navigating um, predominantly white spaces?
0: I say the opportunities are better now. And again, the, the beauty about the internet is you can reach anyone. I'm having conversations. I've been having a conversation with a copywriter in Kenya. I've been having a Zoom chat with a copywriter in Kenya. And his name, his first name's James. Can you believe it? You know what I mean? Whereas 10 years ago, no. So I would say, do it. If it's what you want to do, do it. I don't see, I was going to say I don't see a problem. That's probably not correct. Because I'm a different generation, I would not dissuade a black man or woman from going into the industry to work in a predominantly white environment. Because that's not for me to say. If they said, James, what's your experience? I will tell them my experience. And I said, this is what happened to me back in the day. I can't tell you what it's like now to knock on the BBC doors in 2020 because I stopped doing that 10, 15 years ago. I said, I don't need you. They might need me, they might not, but I don't need you. But if you want to pursue that, go there. And here's the challenge to the likes of your BBCs, your ITVs, any of those terrestrial channels. If they reject you, they've got to give you a damn good reason, and they can't mention your colour. If you're not qualified enough, okay, how do I get qualified? If you don't have enough experience, where do I get enough experience? When we were kids growing up, our parents used to say to us, "If you get turned down for a job because you can't read and write." You can do something about that. But if you get turned down for a job because of the colour of your skin, that's discrimination. And there are laws about discrimination. Whether the laws are enforced is a different game. But nowadays, you've got generation... I don't know. Is it generation Y? No, I don't know. Z? You see that? I don't, I don't know. Z. Right? So you've got generation Z now, so things are different. You've got kids who were brought up with the internet and know how to programme things, but at the same time, lack common sense. So metaphorically... And I've used this with a few of my black male friends. We talked about, you know, we used to want to be on the pitch. Now I want to be the coach or the manager. Because I don't have the legs to last 90 minutes. (laughs) But i got the tactics to help you win during 90 minutes. So I think it's for my generation, because we've been denied access for so long, there's so many of us feel that we still have something relevant to say. Not that we don't but we need to choose a platform. And what I'm very conscious of is, I know what I want to say. But if there's a person who's 20, 30 years younger than me, a black man or black woman who's got something to say, I'm not going to say to them, you can't talk because I've got to talk. We can both talk just because we're black. You know, stories might be similar, but our narratives, which is the telling of the story, are different. There needs to be room for both. But at the same time, if the BBC said, yeah, James, it's a toss-up between you and a young black guy up and coming. I'll say give it to him. Seriously. Give it to him. Because I've done okay for now. He's just on the up. And I'd rather he succeeds than we both fail. And that's how I seriously see it. You know, I've had these gray hairs. Well, I I, was, I started going gray when I was 13. No word of a lie. All right? But my beard, it's funny that when at you know, my dad's funeral, my beard was jet black. Within six months or whatever, wow. <laughs> I turned <gray. laughs> And I'm cool with that, though. I'm cool with that. So like I said, to me, I don't see no competition because my stories are my stories. Their stories, fiction or non-fiction, are their stories. So I'm not going to, even if I started writing fiction again, I'm not going to talk about some, I'm not going to write a story about an 18-year-old guy who's doing this and that. I'll probably talk about an 18-year-old guy who's got a 50-something-year-old dad because I'd be that 50-something old But there are certain stories, just because you can tell them doesn't mean you are the best person to tell them. There are certain positions in life where I might be thinking, oh, you know what? Yeah, man, I need to be the spokesperson to talk about how the young people feel. And it's like, as much as I feel like a youth, as much as I still wear my sketch of trainers, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not a youth. <laughs> you know, I'm closer to, to being a pensioner than I am to be 40. Come on. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you kind of have to balance you have to choosing your battles to me is not the right word you have to choose your pro- you have to you know you have to choose your projects and like i said to you as i said to you before it's about knowing who you are and what you have to say i can't speak on behalf of every black person as much as we talk about black community you know it's not wakanda we're not all linked You know, when a white person goes on TV, unless they're a politician or a captain of industry, it's just Joe Blogg's talking. But how many times have we seen over the years when a black person's talking, their name comes up and underneath it says community leader. And black people watching that say, oh, so James is calling himself a community leader. And I'm like, "Uh, I didn't call myself a community leader. Oh, you think you're nice now? No. But why are we community leaders, but white people can just be people, or prime ministers, see what I did there. We're not allowed to be, we're not allowed to be, we're allowed to (laughs) bame. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And it's mad. It's absolutely mad. Hold on. It's absolutely mad about all of this stuff. It's like, we are not allowed to be, and why not? So we're dictated to. You are this, you are that, you are this, you are that. I don't believe you don't have a criminal record. You need to prove to me you have a criminal record. I don't believe your story of racial discrimination. I don't believe it. You need to prove it to me, even though I'm not a judge. I'm just an ordinary member of the public. I don't believe you. I don't, you know, why do you have to wear a Black Lives Matter necklace on Britain's Got Talent? You're offending my eyesight. Why do you have to do this dance? Why do you have to be political? But I got news for you, white people you know as soon as we came to britain for like, in terms of the windrush generation bearing in mind black people have been here since you know since the romans because we were roman generals know your history but if you're talking about the windrush generation the fact that when we landed here you lot see that as a political act anyway but you know you know what you don't see as being political colonization funny that's not political but it is but no 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 we we were just you know because you lot were just savages and childlike and we we had to enslave you. We had to. I oh, mean, what, for the sugar, for the tobacco, for the cotton? No, 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 we did it for you. Okay, so even though you came to Africa with your Christianity and found out the Ethiopians had Christianity centuries before you lot did. Okay, it's like that. Is it? That's what it says for me. I can explain things through stories. I'll leave, you know, there's, there's intellectuals who want to do things on that level. But again, from my copywriting and marketing point of view, you aim for the heart, not the head. That's why the, there's a reason why most police, law enforcement, is trained to aim for the body, because the head is a move, it's a small target. And then in, when we see in fiction the elite assassins, what do they do? Double tap to the head, because they're elite. But the body mass, so I aim for the body. So with my stuff, it either makes you laugh, it makes you think, or it makes you feel. You don't have to sit down to say, oh, in order to decipher what James has said, I need to get a PhD. Because nobody needs to get a PhD in order to take crack cocaine or smoke tobacco. And both of them do you know medical good. So logically, there's no reason to take tobacco or class A drugs. But both are million dollar industries. Billion. Billion. So you don't need them. You want them. So what is it that people want? My dad said to me, there are things you want that you don't need. And there are things you need that you don't want. So whenever I'm talking to people whether it's clients or family or friends, the primary question is, what do you want? And for a lot of people, it's a hard answer. What do you want? Well, why? You know, I want this, this, or and the government needs to do something. Now, what do you want? And every day I ask myself the same question. James, what do you want? It's, what do you want to do today? What do, you want the, what do you want the outcome of this podcast to be? What do you want to do this? If you're, doing a, if you're doing a LinkedIn post, what do you want it to be? If you're having a Zoom conversation, what do you want? You know, If you're going to speak to your mum on the phone, what is it you want from your mum? Is it a case of, do I want her to listen to what I'm going to say or do I want her to give me her shopping list so I can do her shopping? What is it I want? And I think, especially as a black person in COVID Britain in 2020, we've got to ask ourselves that question every day What do I want? When you say, what do I want for my family? What do I want for my friends? What do I want for my community? What is it I want from my country? We want there to be no racism. We want that. Does the country need there to be no racism? You know, if we look at it, if we look at poverty, for example, if everyone was rich, no one would say that they're rich. Because if you've got a million and I've got a million, I can't brag about my million. You go, Sir James, what are you saying? I've got a million. We've just got. But you need poor people to have rich people because otherwise you can't call yourself rich. That's well, all systematic, isn't it? Yeah. So it is a system. So the system has been designed against us. But again, from a black perspective, and going to school here in the 70s and 80s. Our parents knew the system was against us, but I said, there's no excuse. You've got to try t- twice as hard because we know it's against you. But that's no excuse not to try.
1: On that note, that's a perfect end to this podcast. There is no excuse but to try, regardless of what the system has been created, which is gonna be hard and difficult to navigate, as James has clearly, beautifully articulated throughout this podcast, there is no need, there's no excuse whatsoever. But thank you very much for sharing your story and sharing your journey. It's been inspirational has been remarkable it's been eye-opening it's been funny and it's just been beautiful and I love listening to a black experience from your lens and I really hope that people actually take in the because the way that you've just described things that you've gone through right now even from 10 20 30 years ago are still happening right now and they need to that that narrative really needs to change which is what we're trying to do right now with this so I really appreciate your time today.
0: Thank you for the opportunity. And anyone else out there listening, keep telling your story. Keep telling your truth. This is
1: Everyday Leadership. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.bussprout.com. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. I appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.